So welcome everyone. Along with the Diwali's the Anukut festival. So we celebrate that today. And um, it um, the Diwali festival is like a, it's a festival of light against you know, victory of light over darkness. And um, typically the Indian homes are all decorated with lamps and oil lamps and so forth. And uh, it occurs on the full moon, excuse me, the dark moon, the new moon, darkest day, darkest night. So um, to counteract it with, uh, I thought this was going to work, with brightness. And uh, Anukut then is a is a harvest festival, mm. so time for celebration. And um, of course, outside of the external um, cause for celebration, there's. Um, an inner side to the whole affair of Anukut and um, I wanted to begin to speak about that by reading a little something um, that I, I wrote concerning sacred geography because in our discussion we're going to enter into a uh, sacred space hmm? um, from from where our Karnamrita has just returned. Karnamrita Kijai. Karnamrita Das, welcome. Um, and uh, that is the place on earth, if you will, where Krishna's pastimes, uh, pastoral pastimes, uh, were uh, played out and central to that space, that sacred geographic transpatial space um, is the uh, Mount Govardhan. Govardhan. Go means cow, it means Earth. It means it refers to the the people in the area whose livelihood was cows. And Vardhana means to nourish or to increase. So the hill, as many or mountain as many mountains do, provided uh, considerably for um, the uh, residents, animals, humans um, alike. And so the hill was worshipped. It uh, is a long hill named Govardhan in the land of Braj. Hmm? This is the area we're, we're going to. And it's a, rather than a, than a tall hill, it's a long hill. Hmm? So it streaks across the Braj and sometimes it's compared to the T-lock, the like with the mark on our head, the T-lock of the, of the face of, of Braj. 
and uh, it stands up, towers comparatively to the rest of obviously the flat landscape and um, like a flag hmm? uh, denotes uh, it's here, this is the place. place of Krishna's pastimes and has a personified, so to speak, uh, poetically speaking, uh, mountain. He sees everything that goes on there. So if you want to know about the place, it's good to worship him. Now, as we go on, we'll see hopefully that this worship of the mountain is uh, on the surface would be a form of animism. But if we look under the surface at all of the theological and philosophical um, underpinnings of the of the story, the tradition, um, the ongoing, as it is today and here in other in India and here in other parts of the world, here for example, being celebrated, is 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 arguably uh, the uh, from from a uh, theological point of view, it, that mountain and the worship of that mountain, if you will arises out of the richest uh, um, um, literary, uh, uh, well, uh, theological text, <clears throat> the uh, known as the Srimad Bhagavatam. So uh, that's, of course, another argument to make, but it's quite a, quite. Uh, Objective, very, very theologically rich, and uh, and uh, and comparatively, then, in other native, let's say, uh, traditions amongst Adivasis and native peoples and so forth, um, pagan Europe and whatnot. Let's let's say, for example, um, where there is a considerable worship of nature, which is a good thing. We talked about the other day, approach nature with love, then it will show you its secrets. And one of its secrets is it has a soul and it's it's us. And there's consciousness within 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 nature. So um, uh, so that's a good thing, but the difference here, hopefully we'll see, in the worship of the Mount Govardhan and other forms of animism wherein a powerful feature of nature is worship because it provides for the community. Hmm? Community recognizes that unto ourselves we can't provide sufficiently. We're dependent upon the larger picture of nature, so there are attempts to please nature in different ways, however well thought out. Hmm? This is a well, well thought out uh, idea in a very uh, rich and deep theological and philosophical uh, tradition that underlies um, the worship. So we want to take it from gratitude for and veneration uh, of a powerful manifestation of nature that's a provider hmm, to... Um, To the maybe the idea of sacred geography in a trans spatial trans temporal um, 
realm and um, the idea of it being kind of imprinted, overlaid on the ordinary geographical space and something going on within there that um, it's not always visible to the naked eye that arguably constitutes the full the, the zenith of theistic uh, prospect. Hmm? So it looks like animism, hmm? and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's not a very developed philosophical or theological idea of our dependence, what what is the measure of it, um, how to love, um, and so on and so forth, our source. Hmm? So... I'll begin, as I said, with a with a short uh, short reading in this about the place. Hmm. Although Govardhan's not mentioned in it, the place in which this mountain arises is. So bear with me. In Puranic terminology, Puranic means the Puranas, means these ancient records of the Hindus, a certain genre of their of the sacred literature, which is, uh, there are different genres of it. This is a, a, a narrative form, tells stories and uh, histories and and so forth. Hmm. They're not necessarily, liter- necessarily lit- literal histories, but they're histories that tell the philosophical, theological thoughts and ideas of their time. Mm-hmm. So, in Puranic terminology, earth refers to what's called the Bhumandala, within which we find what's called Bharat, Bharat Varsha. Bharat is the old and ancient name for India before it became a republic, mm-hmm. which roughly is roughly, roughly corresponding with the this Bharat, with the an extended geographical sense of what we refer to today as the subcontinent of the Indian Republic. Therein we find, in today's terminology, what might be referred to as a sense of Eastern exceptionalism. You've heard of Western exceptionalism? Well, in Bharat, we find Eastern exceptionalism and, and a, a very significant contribution that it has to make uh, to the world. Hmm. Therein we find, in today's terminology, what might be referred to as a sense of Eastern exceptionalism, a wealth that the West missed in its Orientalism. Orientalism is a term that refers to the Western scholars going to India and trying to understand it through their own lens and convert the heathens and mm-hmm. as they would see it and so forth. And it, it, it still goes on today, looking at it through the Western lens, everything. Mm-hmm. Yes, missed by inter-orientalism so, inter-orientalism, so yes, the West has something important to learn from the East. I mean... It's accepted here, but <laughs> that's not uh, 
very popular idea. A chapter. Okay, okay, I'll cite. As historian Arnold Toynbee put it, a chapter that has a Western beginning will have to have an Indian ending if it is not to end in the self-destruction of the human race. Bharat ki jai. Bharat, India, even today is often referred to by the West as the mystical mother of all religion. We learned uh, the other day from Jamaragni. You don't see him this evening. Yeah, there he is. Okay, because we were we were talking about uh, different religions, but that, that the uh, the monotheistic thrust in the Abrahamic religions has its origins in Zoroastrianism, which is an ancient religion of India, one of one of them. So. The mother of all religion, India, Bharat. Hmm? For its, from its manner of greeting, namaste, that acknowledges and honors the Atma, the self, the soul, in our neighbor, along with its ahimsa, its nonviolence, that further acknowledges the panpsychic underlying reality the atmas or the consciousness in all animation means animals and so forth hmm? to its methodology yoga sadhana that Merton famous Catholic theologian sought out in earnest and that so readily lends itself to adaption by other traditions just like in India, there's this kind of yoga, that kind of yoga. Yeah. Merton thought the we talk about the soul, but we don't have much. To, with the Indians, they experience it, so he went there to find out the methodology that imported it to some into, into, into contemplative life within Catholicism to some extent, for example. Hmm. So we're just speaking about the richness of Bart. Hmm. To its inclusiveness, which is the opposite of the Abrahamic perspective, exclusiveness. To its inclusiveness with regard to other ego-effacing spiritual traditions, to its details as to the nature of the thereafter, of the hereafter. In other words, in Hinduism, God is not without a face. I don't know if you've seen any of those Christian tracts where God has no face. And he's there, but a lot to be said in Hinduism about the nature of that realm. Hmm? Bharat. Bharat's Sanatan Dharma, the perennial philosophy, is priceless at the cost of merely well-reasoned faith. The scripturally stated worldview of Bharat adds up to the less that is much more the wealth of our common human prospect hidden in our underlying Atma's capacity to love, to give. And it is in the pastoral brudge we were talking about within the Bhumandala's Bard Varsha that the heart of divinity descends as the perfect object 
of love. As I said, this is the place where Krishna appears. Beautiful, huh? Beautiful ideas. They're not mine, but I did write it. <laughs> uh, just insistent. Insisting role. More precisely, Krishna descends into our sensual frame of reference along with his abode, this sacred space, Braj, that is the extension of his very self, overlying a particular set of Cartesian coordinates. As Krishna himself states from the Tantra, this delightful Vrindavan is my only dhaman, my only abode. Those who reside here in my abode, whether cows, birds, trees, insects, humans, or gods, at death attain me. Those coward maidens who reside here in my abode eternally are, are eternally connected with me and are devoted to serving me. This forest of Vrindavan, measuring five yojanas, is my body. The Jamuna, a river of immortal nectar, is also the Susumna that serves as my central nervous system. The gods and other beings exist here in subtle forms, and I, who embody all the gods, never leave this forest, although my appearance in and disappearance from this place occur yuga after yuga, millennia after millennia. This delightful abode, consisting of blazing splendor, cannot be seen with a material eye. Thus, Brudge does not physically exist as such. But like today's virtual computer reality, it is made to appear as if it were a limited geographical area, and this for the sake of facilitating God's human-like lila. As such, those that make the pilgrimage to Brudge 90 miles south of New Delhi at the border of the Rajasthan desert, but do not associate with and serve sadhus, saintly persons who live there in Krishna consciousness, never really visit there at all. A location that in reality is one from which there is no return. To think that Vraj is limited is limited, is limited to that geographical area area is and is thus part of the world of limited sense perception and reason is a dam aparad, an offense to the divine abode. The dam and its leela, the abode and its the drama that goes on there, appear one way to our material eyes and quite another to the yogic meditative third and more so to our two eyes when anointed with the salve of love. In today's world, real, quote-unquote, geographic space has in good measure given way to spaces bound only by our technologically assisted imagination. A generation or two from now, virtual landscapes may serve as the primary metaphors upon which our attitudes and values rest, rendering secondary the geographical spaces that served this purpose in the past. Indeed, we are already, some may argue, on the verge of a revolution in which a virtual currency and store of value is arguably poised to replace fiat currency and even gold. If you want to get to the bottom of things, follow the money. <laughs> and from the Bhagwat's perspective, the geographical reality, while is is only virtual, 
while the inner landscape governed by Krishna's Sarup Shakti is by comparison more real. As such, Braj is a trans-spatial, trans-temporal, sacred geographical realm and portal to the unmanifest lila that lies beyond word and thought, the perception of which, the perfection of which, excuse me, is of word and thought, is to realize that one can never say enough about that realm, to do justice to it, but enough to foster constant meditation on it, for which it can be experienced. The fact that speech about it, the likes of which we find in the Bhagavatam and the Lila Grantas of our Goswamis, our teachers, are poetic rather than scientific, does not mean that the truth they expound is less real. As Nobel laureate Niels Bohr states, the fact that religions through the ages have spoken in images, parables and paradoxes means simply that there are no other ways of grasping the reality to which they refer. But that does not mean that it is not a genuine reality. So, we're asked by this brief introduction to enter into a different space. And our own uh, tradition, Chaitanya Vaishnavism, founded by the immediate uh, disciples of Sri Chaitanya, whose ecstasy they sought to locate, as I sometimes say, on the scriptural map hmm, and uh, explain to uh, to the world and give uh, um, the world access to that which his ecstasy manifest externally represented internally. Um, in, in that tradition we, we find of course a number of biographical texts, sacred biographies about Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and his um, um, his teaching, but uh, let me refer to Chaitanya Charitamrita, in which uh, there are two sections where this uh, Govardhan, the hill, hmm? Mount Govardhan, within this sacred geography of, of Braj, um, uh, comes up for him uh, personally. Hmm? He, of course, at one point, um, as a as a young man. Uh, 25, 25, 24, he accepted the renounced order of life, which is usually accepted at a much, uh, much uh, older age when things settle down a little bit for one and the senses are less prone to interact with the world and distract and so forth. But at 24, he accepted the order of sannyas. And, uh, and uh, typically the dharma or the the, the um, or characteristic, I shall say, of the of the sannyasa ashram is to move. Hmm? If you stay in one place too long, you get it start to get attached there hmm? and depend on this and depend on that. And, and the idea is, he doesn't, she doesn't depend on anything except God. Hmm? Spent whatever you get, spend it in a day, go to sleep, broke, wake up the next day, and life of a beggar, but it's rich, hmm? rich internally. So, 
in his mendicant life, then um, at the very onset of it, in fact, when he accepted the order, he wanted to go to to the sacred Brudge, this geographical space we're just, we're just talking about. It took him some time uh, to get there, both uh, in terms of the distance and also in terms of the affection of his um, his followers, who uh, did not like the idea of letting him out of their out of their sight, so to speak. And of course, he liked their association. So he was prone to their affections and so forth, but their affection was for him as a divine figure and the Godhead himself. So attachment to God is a good thing. To other things, that's a problem, right? Mm -hmm. Um, However, there's still, as a sannyasi, as a mendicant, there was a side to him where he also... um, relished being alone. So, if you try to figure me out, you know, why I'm going to be a socialist. Some of you might like at times. So he went, ultimately, to Vrindavan. and he went alone. One assistant went, Brahman, what is his name? Balabhadra, Bhattacharya. Brahmin assistant who was his cook. He went to the Jarikanda forest, the jungles, and he was very happy there, alone and meditating on Krishna without any any disturbance. Ultimately, he came to to Braj, and and of course, this is the place of Krishna's pastimes, and. Um, uh, he, in the course of moving within that sacred realm, uh, he came to the uh, Haridev Temple. Hmm? Haridev Temple is is the houses the deity of Narayan. Narayan is the form of God that is uh, uh, um, uh, worshipped with awe and reverence rather than in intimacy, like uh, like Radha and Krishna. Mm-hmm. And there are many different uh, forms of Narayan. So Haridev is one of the forms of Narayan. And he is the presiding deity of this particular section within this sacred geography of Braj. Mm-hmm. So it's sometimes depicted um, graphically as a lotus with different petals. Mm-hmm. And on the western petal sits this Haridev. So there are deities presiding over different sections of the sacred landscape. So one who knows these things knows how to venerate the deity here and then get a, an epiphany or an insight as to, as to what's otherwise invisible. And great mystics, uh, sadhus, go there and a number of them under the particularly under the direction of Sri Chaitanya who's now gone there and Later, will tell his disciples, Rup Sanatana, principal disciples like that, go there and excavate the mysteries of this place. So they went, and in their meditations, they, they, they knew how to venerate the deities of different places, presiding over them. And then they saw things. And then they were so um, um, visibly uh, transcendental hmm, 
and inspiring in their person and character that uh, the, the, the reigning kings of neighboring kingdoms invested funds from their treasury to build monuments wherever the Goswami said, and Krishna did this here when he was here, and Krishna did this here, and build a temple there, and so on and so forth. So the old deity of Haridev apparently um, was, 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 was present at the time Chaitanya Mahaprabhu went there. He went to, it said that if you want to worship the Govardhan hill, which one of the ways in which you do that is to circumambulate it, which takes the better part of a day. How many miles is it around? 14, 15, 15 miles? 15 mile walk. So pilgrims will typically do this on a, on a regular basis. But first you're supposed to worship Haridev, who's the deity residing on the western petal of the lotus there, of the, of the, of the mandala of Braj. So Chaitanya Mahaprabhu went, he worshipped Haridev there and and uh, performed kirtan like we do, chanting. And many people came and they were inspired by his persona and uh, kirtan and so forth. And then coming out, so to speak, of the trance of his kirtan and realizing that he was now again a public figure. You have to understand he's trying not to be a public figure. When he first was going to go to Vrindavan, throngs of followers were going to go with him. And Sanatan Prabhu told him, Gurudev, he said, if you go to Vrindavan like this, so many people will come. It's not a good idea. He was very astute because politically it was not a good idea because the area was governed by the Muslims. And if a big band of Hindus are marching across, you know, the the plains, then they might be uh, they might think something's up, some revolution is brewing, and and whatnot. So it was politically astute advice, and it was also good spiritual advice, which is primarily the way that Mahaprabhu himself, Chaitanya Dev, took it. I should not go to Vrindavan with a big group celebrating me. This is the place to celebrate Krishna. Hmm? So he went, practically speaking, alone. One sit, one assistant who was kind of half with him because he couldn't go all the way inside everything that Mahaprabhu experienced, right? But when he came out of his kirtan and he was surrounded by so many people and they were astounded by the measure of his own absorption in the, in the, and what he saw in Haridev, the deity that they were worshipping regularly, but what are they? how much were they drawing from that? They may have been going through the motions, we do this, our ancestors have done this, and why do we do this? It wasn't all that well thought out. And so they weren't getting from it what they could, but Chaitanya Dev was, and they were so, so many throngs of people came. When he came out of the trance, he, said, oh, he thought, to him, here I am, and now so many people. So he slid out, so to speak. He went to uh, Brahmakund, took his bath there, and Balabhadra cooked cooked lunch hmm, from that ingredients that he begged hmm, in a private quiet setting again Mahabharata was peaceful hmm, as he wanted to be in Vrindavan an unknown hmm. it's hard hmm. he was like the sun who after rising 
tried to hide himself. Difficult proposal. Hmm. Difficult, difficult uh, task, right? Hmm. So, and then from Brahmakund, he, uh, he, uh, he had his lunch, and then he uh, he circumambulated the Govardhan Hill. Hmm. I think he came to Govindakund. Govindakund means lake. There are different lakes there, and uh, uh, he bathed there in the evening, and then took rest. And while he was sleeping at night, or as he was starting to take rest, he thought the famous deity, hmm, who's who who was so uh, impressive, um, or made such a powerful impression upon the uh, Madhavendra Puri, who was the guru of his guru. Hmm? He's kind of the original guru in the Gaudiya Sampradaya lineage. It's said that the the seed of the fruit of Prem, of the special kind of transcendent love of God that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was giving, hmm? um, that fruit, the seed of it appeared in, in Madhavendra Puri. Hmm? And Madhavendra Puri, uh, as a mendicant himself, was living in Vrindavan. And he was living there, and and his habit was to chant and chant and chant and chant and chant and chant. Hmm. That's what he, he was really living in that space. He did not beg even for food, which is most people work to make sure they get food. Hmm. Some people, as I said, they would they would beg whatever they get, they would eat, and then that was that. And the next day they would start again. Hmm. But he didn't do even that. He didn't even beg. He just chanted. If some people, somebody brought something, then he would, he would he would take it. If he had completed his vow to chant a certain number of times, <laughs> this was his his standard, right? So there he was chanting, and sitting under a banyan tree, sacred tree, and one cowherd boy came with a pot of milk and said, who are you? And he said, I'm not a vendor. He said, well, I am the charge of this area here. And uh, I don't let anybody go hungry. And so those who don't get their own food, make their own, those who don't, don't beg, I supply them. So here, I give you this milk when you finish chanting. Drink that milk. So he was stunned by that beautiful boy, and he was chanting, and his mind kept going to that boy, that figure, who actually corresponded with the name of Krishna that he was chanting. And then he had an epiphany that through the name, hmm, what's in a name, they say, right? Well, did you get his name? Then you know. There's a lot in the name. Hmm? If you got his name, we can find him. Hmm? You follow him. Hmm? So the name, the logos, the divine logos. If you know the name hmm, of God, if you know it, how to invoke it, hmm, with feeling, hmm, necessity, longing for union, hmm, in love with your source, so to speak, to put it in broad, broad terms, hmm, you can capture him by the name because his name is his form. And his 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 leelas, his play, hmm? 
his qualities, his associates. So by the chanting, this will appear in the heart. And in the case of Madhavendra Puri, he appeared outside his heart. Krishna appeared before him. And then he recognized, that was the, that's the, whose name I'm chanting. And he brought me milk, and then he passed out. And he woke up, drank a little milk, and then, and, uh, and and passed out again. And then in his trance, that same boy appeared to him and said, actually, I'm in the bushes over here. And I've been here for a long time. I preside over this place, but I've been living in the bushes. My devotees hid me here when the Muslims attacked this area. In the words he's saying, I was a deity in the temple. In that form I was appearing. When the Muslims attacked, the priests took my form, like the form of Krishna here, and hid me in the bushes. So that they would not, because the Muslims would come and break the deities of the of the Hindus and say, "See, you're just worshiping idols." Hmm? That's a whole other. We have a reply to all of that, of course, but won't go into it here. So he said in the dream, says, "Please come and get me out." So Madhavendra Puri woke up from the dream, and he was so profoundly influenced by the mystical dream that he was able to gather. And this is just a a mendicant. He had no money, no following or anything of the sort. He was able to gather the work force of the whole community. Hmm? Just by his enthusiasm, he said, I had a dream. Hmm? <laughs> Won't you join me? <laughs> and so uh, they came by the thousands. Hmm? And, and everywhere they went looking in the bushes. Hmm? Right? And they found him, the deity of Krishna, in stone, right? So he's not really in stone. Right? He appears, just a little bit of the, the theology on that. If he can appear in pen, why not in stone? And will form be a limitation, or will it be like the canvas of an artist that makes his art known? accessible. Hmm? Form can be a limitation or it can facilitate as well. Hmm? What is material form that's here today and gone tomorrow? When consciousness invests itself in matter, matter takes shape, like this house. It's consciousness, right? You can say it's wood and stone and paint, so forth. But it's really consciousness that's brought all these things together in a certain way and give it a certain feeling. Hmm. Right? So behind, in our practical experience, when we invest our consciousness in matter, matter takes shape. An idea, right? Subjective. Then we invest it with regard to the objective world, and then the, the ingredients of that world take take a shape. So on a larger level, we see that we're not the only unit of consciousness. Hmm? We have a source. So there's consciousness behind behind matter. Hmm? Hmm? And so the, the, the Godhead can take a shape that we could then approach and 
how do you love God? Well, how do you love anybody? You say, do you think we could, would you like to go out for dinner sometime? <laughs> I'm not pretty crude at that. <laughs> I don't know, I know how to do it very well, but just <laughs> something like that. <laughs> so, so it could be worse or better, I don't know. Something like that. So so typically in the, in the, in the Hindu temple, like we have here, we have the, the deity in stone, but we don't treat it like stone. So we say, would you like to have lunch? So that's cooking. And today is a festival, so we cook. And then through mantra and, and different uh, ritual procedures, then there's offering made to the deity, and then the food is distributed. So we don't eat here. We just honor the offering. Hmm? It's a pretty good way of not eating. Mm-hmm. So it becomes a yoga, right? A means of connecting with the, with with the Godhead. It's a form of love. If you love someone, well, feed them or invite them to dinner, right? Among other things, give them gifts, clothes, so on and so forth. Take care of them. So the deity was found in the bushes, and then their faith in Madhavendra, just went to another level, exponentially expanded. His enthusiasm, his own vision, was such that he was able to compel thousands of people to get involved in this. And he was, you know, a beggar. Could have been, could have been thought to be a bag, a bag man or a bag lady or something. I just saw God, you know. Okay, pal. Here's a guy. Here's a buck, you know. Get yourself some peanuts, you know. So, but he, but schizophrenic as he was, perhaps you know, he was able to get the, all the, all these people involved, and then they found the deity. So now you can imagine exponent. Then word spread to surrounding villages, and a festival was made on the hill, on top of the hill, and a temple was erected. The deity was enshrined. And for weeks, different communities got like tickets to do the worship that day. And the whole village would cook that day. Stacks of rice, mountains of rice and stacks of chapatis and hills of halava and so forth. And, and, and then come offer to the deity and it would be distributed to the people. So this went on for like months. Hmm? This is the kind of uh, worship, if you will, that he was able to generate hmm, by the depth of his his vision and how he re- responded to it. Hmm. So this was he was the guru of Sri Chaitanya's guru. So his param guru, his grandfather guru, right? Hmm. And so when Chaitanya Mahaprabhu came and slept that night at the at the base of the Govardhan Hill, he was thinking, I would like to have the darshan, which means to go and stand before the deity and to see the deity? No. It means darshan means to be seen by the deity. So it's just a whole it should change your whole perspective. We think I'm looking at things and now it's like I'm being looked at. And it's okay because who's looking? Hmm? We think of ourselves as the subject and then matter as the object. Right? So we take tools from the objective world and then we we use them, and they have no life. We give them life. Hmm? So if we look down, we're the subject, and matter is the object. Hmm? But if we look up, 
there's a super subject in relation to which we're like the tools, instruments. Hmm? Hopefully we'll be willing instruments. Hmm? But if we're not, then he'll put us down. <laughs> that one didn't work. <laughs> what can I do? <laughs> Try him later. Maybe to, uh, no complaint. The hammer doesn't complain. Could you hit that a little softer? <laughs> My nose. No. No complaint. But if, of course, if we, we if we enter into this relationship with the Godhead through yoga, then we'll feel that we're entering into very a very affectionate space, an affectionate embrace. This is how Krishna. We it's determined that within Hinduism, Krishna is the fountainhead of all forms of divinity. Well, you say the God is the supreme controller, let's say. But you may notice that Krishna doesn't doesn't have like a sword or a, a big horse or something like that or um, whatever you might need to control. He's not sitting on a big throne, but he's depicted as having a flute, hmm. yeah. herding cows. <coughs> but his leela is rich with affection, so he rules by affection. And what could be more powerful? And if you are ruled by affection, then if I rule you physically, then you'll complain. Right? If I lock you up, you can't get out, then you've got reason to complain. On a more subtle level, I could rule over you by mental, psychological manipulation. And you might not even know it. You might need a friend to say, you've got to get out of there, he's terrible. Get away from that guy. He's abusing you. Oh, okay, I can get out. But now, if you're actually controlled by love, then it's not a problem. Because if you're controlled by love, then you control the controller as well. That's what it means, right? So no problem there. Krishna is, so the, the idea, oh, the hierarchical idea that there's a God and then there's us or something like that it might not be popular and, and socially in the world today or you know, that kind of idea. Hmm. But what is the nature of the ruler here? Hmm. Krishna is controlled by love. Hmm. He controls by love and he is controlled by love. What's to be afraid of? Right? The guru in our tradition. Oh, that's something to be afraid of. <laughs> the guru, oh God, spare me. Right? But who is the guru? Is she who serves the best and therefore by example can teach service. So what do you have to be afraid of a servant? Oh, I'd like to have some, as a matter of fact. <laughs> so that's our problem, of course. We would like to have servants. Hmm? Therefore, we can understand very easily what is bhakti. Just switch it around. Hmm? Hmm? To be a servant of Krishna. Hmm? So, um, he wanted to have darshan. He wanted to be seen by the deity right? of Madhavindapur. He was now, had been established in the temple. But he had such regard for the mountain Govardhan, 
because of the leela that is involved in, 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 in Krishna leela, which Govardhan is involved in, Govardhan takes on this very overtly divine uh, status, the hill. Hmm? That's a theological discussion we have to get to further down, hopefully. But because of that, he didn't want to walk on the hill. He thought, oh, why, if I walk on him, that won't be a good idea. Hmm. I, put, I, should, I should bow down to the hill. I shouldn't walk on the hill, was his thinking. He, he had a respect for the hill, he was seeing it as a deity itself. So you don't walk on the deity. You take your shoes off before coming in the temple. Speak of walking on the deity. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, in our school, we, in ordinary life, it's said you get ahead by stepping on the heads of others. And here we get ahead by having our heads stepped on by others. We're always bowing down. <laughs> there you are. Some good, some some saintly person steps on me. That'll be good for me. And I'll be careful not to step on any saintly person. And there's a little, little saintliness in all people. So, and God's in everyone. So, everyone's body is a tabernacle, of temple of God. They don't know it. We have to go and wake up the deity and start the service sometimes. But So, he wanted to have the darshan of the Gopal deity, but he thought, how can I go there? This was his dilemma. And then the Gopal deity... Understanding his desire, arranged for the Turkish soldiers to invade hmm, the area. They were in the area to invade. Hmm. And so he arranged in his omniscience for the priests to find out about the invasion and then take the deity out of the temple off the hill and bring him down and hide him in somebody's house at the bottom of the hill in Gantuli, hmm? from Aniyor, hmm? Anukut, to from the west side to the, to the from the east side to the west side hmm? of the hill, really. And so, in in the morning, he found out that the deity was had been moved. Hmm? So you can look at it and say, "Well, just see who cares for your." God, the Turkish people are coming, and if he's God, why doesn't why doesn't the deity just chase them away? If he's God, we're going to come and break him. This is what the Muslims were doing. They're they're invading Hindu holy places, which were which were fortresses, and Hindu kings would you know protect the deities and so forth. And they would come and where they were successful in invading, they would break the deity. Because one thing about the Islamic faith is they have this thing about the God shouldn't have a form or something like that. I'm not an expert on it, but so idol worship, mm. idol worship is is more of, and that's in, there in Christianity a little bit too. Um, but idol worship means that you manufacture your own idea of God from your own head in worship. That's not what we're doing. Mm. This idea is not coming not coming from my head that God looks like plays a flute. You know, I didn't think that up. Neither anybody else. It's coming from these sacred texts, which are come from inward meditative. Pursuit, and then, oh, through the epiphany comes out, and the sacred texts are written down, and so forth. Right. So. Uh, so. Um, so what? So he. Uh, 
so, so, you know, why didn't the deity just just get rid of the Turks? Because he wanted to meet Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. <laughs> he wanted to solve his uh, his devotee's dilemma. Uh, so he arranged the Turks to come, and then he wasn't there. <laughs> so so much for you guys. I disappeared. You see, right? And there he was in the house of a devotee he had taken care of, and secretly, and Mahaprabhu found out, of course, by his arrangement, and he went and had the darshan of Madhavendrapuri's deity. And in circumambulated Govardhan Hill, again, and in circumambulating Govardhan Hill, he chanted a very significant verse from Srimad Bhagavatam's 21st chapter, 18th verse, the Venu Gita. Hmm? What is the verse, Mars? Please sing. Tantaya Dhrirabala Haridasavadya Jadrama Krishna Charanas Parasapta Mudra Manam Tanoti Sago Gana Yorta Yorgas Paniya Soja Vasakanda Vakanda Mulai Figuraja Gogodan Kijak. This is a verse from the Venu Gita of Bhagavatam spoken by Radha in glorification of, of Gobardhan. So Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, he chanted this verse. Hmm? Remember, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was actually Krishna himself pursuing the mood of Radha. Hmm? So I want to come back to this verse after we continue this story of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's journey. Hmm? After he left Vrindavan, and we'll explain the verse, then later on in his life, this is in his Madhya the middle portion of his his uh, his Leela, the Anti Leela, the closing part where his life became more and more esoteric, more and more internal. Hmm? His external uh, way in which he conducted himself gave rise to internal experience that eventually didn't allow him to remain as a public figure, but as a recluse where he could not, could not even explain anything, speech. He, he was just uh, seemed uh, like almost incoherent at times. Hmm? And on one such occasion in Jagannath Puri, another holy, sacred, geographical space in our tradition, he saw a sand dune. This is on a, uh, this is a, this is Puri is a seaside um, city. And the famous Jagannath temple is there, a huge temple. The whole city centered around it, the whole economy centered around the temple. Mm. Um, so anyway, on the beach, he saw the sand dune, and what was happening for him now was that he was so absorbed internally. Mm. As you begin to become absorbed internally, then certain things will become stimulants mm, for giving rise to... Intensified spiritual emotion. Ultimately, we call that rasa, right? So the different sentiments for Krishna, like fraternal love or romantic love, we call that a that emotional composite. That's a that's a, a rasa, the romantic rasa, the the fraternal rasa. In ordinary poetry, which we were talking about the other day, in Indian poetry. Rasa is like a cumulative peak emotional experience that so consumes you that you get like get kind of like taken into the 
film itself and you're not in your seat anymore hmm? has the power to transport you hmm? so as material poetry has the power to do this to some extent and kind of dislocate you and the affective experience is kind of removal from your present sense of wherever you are or whatever you are I mean it's a little bit anyway so with this empowered spiritually empowered poetry then it's, it can be an, this poetry can be an indirect source of giving you the experience of, of transcendental, transpsychological emotion, the culmination of which is what we call rasa, which forms an internal identity to associate with the personality of the Godhead as a friend, as a lover, as it may be the case. So... In the course of our progress, then, as we let's let's say we we uh, by by association with sadhus we get impressions for romantic love for Krishna, Madhurya Rasa, hmm? and so we are pursuing that relative to where we are in our practice. Hmm? One of the things we will do at a certain point become interested enough when we re- when we realize that's what's happening to us hmm? to study about it. Hmm. It's just like, um, well, let's say you want to drink milk. You get the idea, I'd like to have some milk on a regular basis. Well, in a civilized society, then, that's well and good, but now you have to learn how to take care of a cow. Hmm. So to have the desire is, is, is one thing. That's the basis of it. Right? If you don't have any desire to taste milk, well, you know. <laughs> You probably won't. <laughs> but if you have the desire, the longing, through association, if it comes to you, that I want to be like her, like him, what's, what's moving them? That's moving me to do the same things they do, at least externally. What internally is driving that sadhu, that saint, my guru? Hmm? Right? And so then we get a glimpse of that, and then we thought, well, that's my ideal. Hmm? So I have some, now some interest in that. Now you have to figure out how that all works. Well, that will help you, let's say. That will help you. So you learn what is romantic love of Krishna. As Rupa Goswami has explained, different stages. What are the different ingre- emotional, transpsychological emotional ingredients and so forth. Not that you will try to have them or make them, but to understand them, then when you read about that, that Madhurya Rasa, do you, you ever understand it, what's being said there, and enter into it a little bit more? Hmm? Right? So, one of those ingredients is called the Udipana Vibhav. Hmm? So, Udipana Vibhav is something like this. Let's say, let's say you love your daughter, okay? And she's been away from at school for a long time, and you haven't seen her, and you're not expecting her back. Hmm? But you come home from work, and there you see her shoes at the door. She left it. You see, you always loved your daughter. You you always love her all the time. But now you see something in relation to her hmm, that reminds you. Of course, in this case, it means she's home. hmm, hmm. But you see it, and it it causes that the coal smoldering hmm, love for your daughter to inflame. hmm. This is Udipana. Udipana. So it has a kind of a causal effect. 
it's not entirely causal because the coal's already already the charcoal's already burning there and now it's become inflamed hmm. so well in the different rasas certain things in the context of the description in the poetry constitute these udipanas and when you read it, and you have some feeling for it oh it it, it causes it to get to be transported there a little more but when the the culture becomes so deep hmm, then beyond the things that are technically udipanas for one type of rasa or another the whole world becomes spiritualized and turns into an, an udipana hmm? that's why for example the saint looks at the cloud that's dark but shining pregnant with water bringing an end for example in India to the hot hot season in Vrindavan on the Rajasthani border of the Rajasthani desert hmm? it's soothing and it reminds them of Krishna Krishna's complexion hmm? and that he's full with benediction of, 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 of grace that can put out the fire of material existence, hmm? the ongoing fire of samsara. And just by seeing the cloud, it becomes a new deepana. Hmm? Hmm. In this case, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu saw a sand dune. And it, for, in it, for him, and he saw the ocean beyond it, and what for, to what he saw from his internal absorption was Govardhan Hill and the Jamuna River, hmm? and the shore of Jagannath Puri and the sand turned into Vrindavan, hmm? and because this was his the cultivated ambition to love Krishna in Madhurya Rasa, when he saw Govardhan, it's such a special place where Radha and Krishna will meet and gopis and, and Krishna's friends and so forth. It's Again, the hill is providing in so many ways for the people hmm, and the animals and for the play of Krishna, right? Hmm. So he ran after that sand dune. Hmm. And this verse that Maharaj just chanted, he again chanted, this is the second time, in the middle portion of his leelas where he was a public person but still seeking some privacy, but still a public figure, hmm, to the point that the way he conducted himself publicly, he could no longer function as a public person. He was driven so inside. I mean, this is crazy. He sees a sand and starts running after it. So his devotees started running after him, trying to keep up with him. Even the old and lame, what is his name? Bhagwanacharya, was trying to limp and catch up with him. But no one could catch him. He ran towards the hill, and what was he seeing? And he got there and fell and passed out. Hmm? Then the devotees caught up with him. Govinda Das was fanning him and pouring some water on him. And they're trying to bring him back to external consciousness. They thought, he's gone within, he's never coming out again. Hmm? And then suddenly he came out. And he was looking around for something. And he's looking and then gradually, gradually he's moving from internal consciousness to the extra, the internal consciousness of Krishna Lila to the external consciousness of his own Gaur Lila, and then he's looking and he can't see it, and he sees his associates and he's, 
where am I? And he says, I saw Krishna and Radha and they were meeting in a cave at Govardhan. And the, the Sakis were there, the friends of Radha were there and assisting and they asked me to pick some flowers and bring them. Now it's my vision is broken, it's gone. How can I go back there? He's thinking like this. This is a very interesting um, um, Leela of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, just in the ways that I've described, but I'll go on. But before I do, <laughs> I'll preface that by by stating that the description in Chaitanya Charitamrita in the Bengali verse of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's ecstasy is very, very moving. I don't know the verses by heart. I was going to copy them and read them, but of course you don't know Bengali, but um, but it's very, very powerful. And the descriptions are, are, are I mean, his, the transformations of his body included perspiring blood. doesn't sound very pretty, but Vishaya, what is it? The nature of Prem, this love of Krishna is such. The outside it looks like poison, but the inside it's full of ananda, ecstasy. Hmm? It's just like if you want to pursue material life. I was talking with a young man from Georgia. What is his name? Kevin. Kevin. And he said, Swami, you know, I was asking him about his life. He said, I'm weird. I said, well, you're in the right place. You know. <laughs> you know, I don't do this, I don't do that, I'm not interested in that, I'm not interested in that, and I'm interested a little bit in monastic life, and I said, well, yeah, 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 you're in the right place. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're weird, that's for sure. As the transcendentalists, there's not, there's not many of us, so we should stay together. That's my idea. <laughs> yeah, strength in numbers. So, uh, very extreme. In other words, the symptoms of Rupa, Rupa Goswami describes of involuntary. These are what happens is this bhava hmm, enters. This is Krishna's. This is internal shakti hmm, that bhakti is constituted of. It, it enters and maturely in a mature form and rides on the subtle body, on the mind, the intellect, the ego, and so forth, and transforms it. And as it transforms it, the gross body has certain physical reactions. So it, so when it rides on the prawn, the air is in the body. When the air contacts the water element in the body, then tears come. Hmm. Perspiration. Hmm. And tears like, like a fountain. Hmm. Right? Hmm. Hard to imitate that. Hmm. And... Um, and when it touches the air, then there's passing out. And when it touches the earth element, then there's uh, like uh, to become stunned and so forth. So uh, these are involuntary physical reactions. The early ones would be like crying, weeping with joy and hairs standing on end. Hmm? You go deeper, there are others. Eight. And then there's two at the same time, three at the same all eight at the same time, and then different stages, in a smoking stage, in a lit stage, and in a blazing stage. Hmm? And after saying all this, this is a whole doctrine of ecstasy. It's, a, it's an interesting word. Hmm? And we got a whole doctrine of it. What, what is the nature of Bob? It's not just you to put on a t-shirt, be in the Bob, and there you are. Right? 
there's the shadows of it, there's reflections of it, there's different degrees of after all this he goes to the height of what this bhav uh, is, for example, sattvika bhavs, these involuntary um, symptoms. And he says, but there are some that are so rare, I, I'm not others, I'm not going to mention them. And these were appearing in Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Hmm. And the devotees are seeing this, his his devotees. So he came out of that, right? Hmm. And and then internally, the significant thing is what he saw is himself not as a sakhi, not as a friend of Radha, but as a servant. Because they asked him to bring flowers to service, the sakis. Hmm? So the, there's a group called Munj- they're called Mundaris. It means like the, the blossom hmm? on the sacred Tulsi, or you know, the, um, a type of female associate of Krishna that that only wants to serve his his beloved Radha and facilitate bringing the two, Radha and Krishna, together in the intrigue of the drama of the Leela. Hmm? Raghunath Das prays, and you might not know this verse, Maharaj, but I can't remember the Sanskrit myself. But um, <laughs> There he knows. <laughs> there he goes. He should know. This is his ideal. So. Raghunath Das says, I don't want to be the friend hmm, of Radha. Hmm. Yeah. He said, he, he's extolling the virtues. I want to be the servant hmm, of the Manjari Bhav. Hmm. It's a das das, das, servant of the servant of the servant kind of perspective. The idea is it's more to be gotten there. If you want to be a group leader in a romantic relationship with Krishna, well, you can't compete with Radha. So if you serve Radha, whatever she experiences vicariously or through such service, you can, you can experience that intimacy with Krishna as well. It's a very interesting, and this is very, like, it's right in the core, the center of um, Gaudiya Vaishnavism. So Chaitanya Mahaprabhu versus Krishna, trying to understand himself from Radha's perspective. Krishna trying to understand Radha's love for him, which makes her attractive to him when he's supposed to be God and desirable by everybody. There's something he desires, which God's supposed to be full. So Radha, of course, is his other better half, so to speak, and uh, so we have a transcendental dyad, two, two or one, and different at the same time. But Krishna, trying to understand him, what makes Radha attracted to him, realizes that it's something in himself that she alone can perceive from her vantage point. So he wants to stand, view himself from her vantage point. That requires another avatar. That is Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. He's Krishna in pursuing himself as experienced by Radha, which is the zenith of of the experience of the of the Godhead. Hmm? And in the course of his doing that, hmm, teachings about that come out. Hmm? Right? Hmm? And the primary students and, and subsequent disseminators of the teaching Rup, Sanat, and Goswami, they were these types of, in their spiritual internal life, these types of, of manjaris. And what it, what it means is that the closest thing to what Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was trying to experience and is successful in doing by stepping into the bhava of Radha hmm, 
ordinary souls can experience through this Manjari Bhav. Hmm? Close to what he was about hmm? in, in his pursuit. So Chaitanya Mahaprabhu thought, not consciously, but in the Leela, he tastes for a moment that Manjari Bhav, very sweet, hmm? in this internal Leela. He tastes that. This is Unata Ujvala. Anarpitcharim charat kurnayabhutina kolo samarupaitam unata ujvala. Samarupaitam unata svabhakti sriyam. It is the bright ujvala, brightest jewel of love. And unata ujvala, a special kind of gopi bhav, special kind of radha bhav. We find in the history of the Puranas, we said the Puranic history, if you will, prior to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's appearance, some persons becoming, detaining this type of gopi identities, right? Hmm? Well, what's unique about Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's disposition, dispensation? Hmm? That this, that's Ujbala Rasa, but not Unata Ujbala Rasa. Hmm? It's a way to become as close as you could to be coming Radha. There's a little bit of Radha in every devotee. She is de- bhakti personified. A little bit of Radha in every devotee. Hmm? You can't become Radha. So you can't have her experience. But if you attach yourself to her in service, then it's possible to... This is the idea. So This is a very his unique uh, dispensation hmm, to the world. And the best supporter in this is Nitai Chand. <laughs> So we have good cause to celebrate it and point people in that direction. Hmm? He was a good friend, right? In the literal sense of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. So, I guess again, while running towards the hill, Mahaprabhu again chanted this verse from the Bhagavatam. Hmm. Hmm. So we go through that verse, right? And we come to that. And this is a long discussion. I have to be short, I think, on this. Part, it's a big part, but Radha's verse, right? So, this is a part of the Bhagavatam in which, uh, in which uh, the gopis are amongst one another and they're overall lamenting about their position, which is different from everyone else in this sacred realm who loves Krishna. Everyone else in this sacred realm who loves Krishna has every right to love Krishna. His parents should love him, and it's something to celebrate, and everybody celebrates it along with them. His friend should love him, right? And that's to be celebrated too. Those who have a servant relationship with him, that should be celebrated too. This is all called Sambandarupa. There's another type of love called Kamarupa. And that has no place in the social structure of the Leela, overtly. It's a conservative, uh, socially speaking, in in some respects. Uh, So to have an unwedded relationship with Krishna or even what might appear to be an adulterous relationship with Krishna. This is a 
not allowed. Hmm? Sambanda rup Sambanda means relationship. Hmm? So to be have parental love, servile love, fraternal love for Krishna, that is an acceptable relationship. But calm, to act only out of calm, out of desire, and to be driven by that, without consideration of what's right and what's wrong, what the social norms are, and so forth, that's unbecoming. Hmm? That should not be done. Hmm? But it's so powerful that it is done. Hmm? Hmm. And you can't. If you try to check it, you'll only inflame it. If if, you, if your daughter says, "I love that guy," and you say, "Well, he's from the wrong side of town," <laughs> and 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 and, and she, then she just loves him that much more. Uh, you know, more of the obstacles you try to put in the way, the more the love rages. Right. So that this part that did feel good, but it is a little noisy. <laughs> noisy, little noisy. <laughs> so I'll I'll just speak over it. Right. So this is a, a way of speaking about this this type of uh, of, of Radha's love for Krishna. She's the personification, the full face of love for Krishna. So there are some obstacles in the drama to the love that just causes it to be accentuated and inflamed and and so forth. Hmm? And then some people know about it, and like the friends, and they're helping to assist in secret meetings and so on and so forth. Hmm? So this is called parakia, parakia bhav. Hmm? And it's the central drama. The central is what the whole drama of the, the sacred geography is about. It's all about that, directly and indirectly. That's what's happening. Hmm? It's just kind of like the sexual urge kind of pervades the whole world. Hmm? People didn't talk about it, but now they just don't. It's in every everybody's talking about it. Every joke and it's got some, you know. <laughs> sexual reference practically so it's everywhere it pervades we're we are a result of it right so it can't be that bad <laughs> so so it's everywhere so in in this sacred realm this love of Radha and Krishna it pervades right this romantic love hmm? it's what the whole drama is about this is what Chaitanya Mahabharata is coming about to to fully exp- understand it himself Krishna himself to fully understand it. It's a very esoteric idea. Hmm. So, uh, so in this section of the Bhagavatam that this verse comes from, the Chaitanya Mahaprabhu excited twice when seeing literally Govardhan Hill and then seeing just a hill and seeing Govardhan hmm, in a more extreme form of his pursuit, right stage of his pursuit. Hmm. This verse is one amongst a number of verses uh, in which the gopis are depicted in the Bhagavatam as hearing Krishna's flute and speaking about the positive effect it has on everybody, on the inanimate, non-moving living beings, on the stones causing them to melt, on the water, the current causing it to freeze or go backwards, causing the cows to milk when they hear it. Hmm? It's a big spiritual oxytocin <laughs> now comes the milk <laughs> uh, 
and uh, and so on and so forth. They think beautiful verses describing the influence of the flute. Venu Gita, it's called the song of the flute. Gopis are speaking about it, but in the context of all of this, they're deprecating themselves in their own position because of the obstacles, socially speaking, to their union with Krishna doesn't allow them to take advantage of the flute. They're enticed by it, but they but they can't respond to it overtly in the ways that others can. So they're speaking of their own plight, so to speak, hmm? and self-deprecating. Uh, and, and in the context of this chapter, then this verse comes from the lotus mouth of Radha, right? She says, Ha, hanta, hanta, hanta ayam, hantya, hanta ayam, adrir, abhala, haridasabarjo. One of the nice, uh, the other night I was asked about another Gaudiya sect that's it's a larger organization. They were having a debate. They're kind of like passe or something, or they're living in, I don't know when they're living, about whether women could be gurus. So I gave my, of course, answer that all of you know, and, and, and gave so many examples of how they didn't get it, um, and all of their reasons for not, or for limiting it and, and allowing it in some constrained way. It's just a big smokescreen for what we call sexism. Um, so at any rate, this morning I got a an email from Jai Shri, hmm, uh, who is the uh, guru of the women's ashram branch of Bhakti Siddhanta, who's our my Param guru, his mission. Hmm. She has an ashram with women, and she's the guru there. Hmm. She said, I heard your class. I was so encouraged by that. Thank you for that. And told me a little bit their history and so on and so forth, their struggles and her guru, how he's fought to get them established and, and, and so on. Hmm. Very nice. So anyway, because that came today, it reminded me of this verse. That's why I want to speak about this verse. And I wrote back to her. And there's one word in the verse in particular that came to my mind, or this even the, even the spirit of it. So, Hantayam Adrir Abala Haridasa Baryo. Radha says, she's speaking to the other girls. So, Abala means girl here. Hmm? Abala. It means weak. So, the fair sex, let's say. Okay? Hmm? It's, not, it's not meant to be a... Uh, in a pejorative, pejorative sense, right? But, um, but she says, uh, she's implying, friends, we are weak. Hmm? And why are we weak? And what should we do about it? This is in one sense what the verse is saying. And we're weak because we have husbands protecting us. <laughs> Hmm? The society is protecting us. Hmm? Hmm? That's making us weak. Hmm? And get, 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 get. In other words, ordinarily speaking, in the culture, it was thought, well, education was not for everybody. They didn't have modern institutions and so forth. So certain class of people were educated, even amongst the males, certain class, other classes didn't need education or higher education. They learned 
trades or they learn how to milk cows and if that's what you did, your parents did milk cows, well, you don't have to go to high school to learn how to milk a cow, right? So no, no need for that. And they were happy. One thing you have to understand when we talk about ancient civilizations like this is that people were different. Okay, Their brain structures were different. Everything about them is different. We are on a different planet. So we are a different, almost a different species. So what worked for them in that environment may not work for us. But one of the things that made everything work for them socially, some of the things which we might think, that sounds kind of odd. The reason it worked for them is because what what pervaded and what was most predominant in the society was a sense that life, human life, is being lived for the pursuit of transcendence. That's what it's all about. And when you put that in there and that everybody knows this is what we're doing here, then you don't try to make an Academy Award winning film out of one frame of your whole life, one, one, one lifetime. Hmm? You realize it's only going to go so far with this and that. Materially speaking, put your en- invest your energy within, hmm? so you can see the whole film and transcend. Right. Hmm? So when you take that out, and that's largely been we've largely been separated from that philosophy in the Western world has been detached from revelation. Hmm? That's leaves the mind just able to just philosophize or put yourself away into existentialism and nihilism or whatever postmodernism ism round and round kind of just a mental masturbation so that's very when you when you when you have this transcendental ideal in place and then there's the social structure is all geared towards helping us go there regardless of what position of life we may be in that we function within that serves the whole social body as a whole well that's a whole different you know way of living than we are now so that's just something to keep in mind at any rate she says oh girls we are weak hmm? and the reason we're weak is because these guys Giving us a hard time, basically. In other words, this thought, in a general social religious sense, the women should be protected. They should have husbands. They used to marry the girls when they were very young, so that they wouldn't get taken advantage of. Marry them, take care of them, teach them religious life, whatever. Um, So, from a social religious varnashram perspective. They should be protected. But from the bhakti perspective and Radha's ragmarg perspective, this was not making them strong. This was making them weak. Hmm? <laughs> so she said, uh, we, we are weak and therefore what we should do is we should take shelter of of, of Gobardhan who is described here as Haridas Barya. She gives him the name. Hari means Haridev. Remember we talked about him. Haridev is the deity that presides over the Govardhan area. He's on the western petal of the lotus of Mandala of Govardhan. Hmm? So we should take shelter of Hari. Not only of Hari, Dev, but Haridas. Haridas Vari. Das means servant. Govardhan, the hill, 
is the servant of Haridev. Hmm. Because he used to be reside in a cave within the hill. That was the temple. So the Govardhan provided the hill, the, the cave, and from the hill, then so many resources were there to serve Haridev. Flowers are growing to pick. Hmm. Streams of water are coming. There are nice breezes. Hmm. Hmm. So on and so forth. Hmm. All of the ways in the, in, the, in the ritual puja of Krishna, in an elaborate system, there's 64 items that are offered in the morning in, with mantra and so forth. Hmm. Incense and so sense and sounds and all things to please the senses of Krishna, right? So you have to go here and there to gather them and whatnot. And uh, but the, there, the, the hill provides all of these things hmm? for Haridev, and so he is Haridas Bari. He's the best servant of Haridev, and and we should take shelter of the of the servants, the devotees of God who are actually devotees, like Govardhan, who are just living to provide for Haridev. Hmm? We should take shelter of him. That will give us strength. And, and of course, what she wants to go on to say is, and Govardhan also, of course, he gives his whole body hmm, as a playground for Krishna. And by giving his whole body as a playground to Krishna, he, 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 she, they, and, and he also serves his friends and his cows and so forth. Hmm. So our ideal should be not to be weak, hmm, in a weak position, restrained by our husbands and the social system, hmm, but to break out from that hmm, and follow the ways of, of the devotees exemplified by Haridas and give our whole body to Krishna. Hmm? And Parakiya love. Give our whole body, top to bottom. Hmm? Everything. No hold, not hold back with anything. And Govardhan himself is, is, is setting this example so he, so, so we, 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 we should follow it. In the context of saying this, they're speaking with one another, but they don't want to be overheard. Hmm? So the... the so she speaks in such a way as that if anybody overhears, they'll misunderstand. In other words, she seems to be saying, we should go to the temple of Haridev. We are weak, girls. We, we, we should go there, go to Haridev's temple and pray to him to give us strength and resources and more cows for our husbands and, 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 and so forth. And uh, and all the the elders over here, well, those good girls, they should go to the yeah, go ahead, go right ahead, such nice, go out into the forest to go over to and find Hari David, do some work, very nice. So externally, that's what they hear, right? Mm-hmm. And that's not not there, but there is something more there, because Hari Dev is the deity of of uh, form of Narayan, and Krishna is the source of Narayan himself, right? In human-like form, in their midst, whom they love. They worship Haridev, Narayan, but they love Krishna. So in Vaidhi Bhakti, they, they ritualistically worship Narayan, but their love is for Krishna. Their minds are somewhere else. It's not on their worship. This is, this is Leela, of course. Their minds are on Krishna. 
and they see Govardhan as the best servant of Krishna, providing for him. Daily he's coming there with his cows and friends, and Govardhan is offering all the nice things to him. What does he say? Yadrama Krishna Charanas Parasha Pramodha. It's describing that um, it's Haridas. Why is Haridas Bari? Why is the best servant? Well, as I'm as I'm saying, Brahman Krishna, their their feet touched there, um, and when their when their feet touched there, Pramoda, his 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 hairs stand on end. The grasses all grow. Do you know that the cows in Vrindavan, when they graze, hmm? you ever try to call a cow? Cow come. It's not so easy. If you get behind them, cow go. Cow goes. Go. Yeah, yeah. So when the cows go ahead of Krishna, of course, they can see backwards too. You know that, right? They can, like they can see you right here very easily. So they're look, making sure he's there. If they can't see him, they stop. If they see him, they go. Hmm. Right? Hmm. Looking at the grass with one eye and back with Krishna at the other eye. So... So when they eat the grass down, Krishna's behind them. So what happens? When Krishna walks, the grass comes up again. Mm-hmm. In ecstasy, the earth sprouts. His hairs stand on end to be touched by the feet of Krishna. So there's always fresh pasture there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is the idea. So Govardhan, is, his hairs are standing on end. And... Uh, He's streaming with waterfalls and crying, weeping in ecstasy. They're explaining, they're looking at Govardhan through their bhava as if he's experiencing all these sattvika bhavas, ecstasies that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is experiencing, like I like I mentioned earlier, right? Hmm. So, manam tanoti sahagogunayus. So, he's offering respect to Krishna. And he receives Krishna and his friends and so forth, and and then you know he goes he goes on to say uh, that paniya suyavasa kandura kandura he provides roots and flowers and so many things and just a brief overview of all of the things items that um, he provides. So. This is a little bit about the mountain worship that we do. It, as you can see, there's quite a bit to, to it. It's not just a simple form of, of animism, which is a good start, but we have to go from there. Shkiraj Govardhan Maharaj ki jai. Suman Mahaprabhu ki jai. Gaur Bhakti Vrinda ki jai. Gaur Premanandi.